Hey everyone, welcome to Mission Driven. My name is Rafi Gregorian. Here at Mission Driven, what we're trying to do is to talk to a bunch of CTOs, co-founders, and other high-level people in the nonprofit sector who are doing technical work and trying to make an impact. Pharmacies are not necessarily the place you expect cutting-edge technology, but today we're talking to Adam Kircher, the co-founder of Serum, who's going to prove us wrong. Serum is short for Supporting Initiatives to Redistribute Unused Medicine. It's a social enterprise committed to expanding healthcare access for those in need. One in four Americans don't refill the prescriptions they need to stay healthy because it's too expensive. But at the same time, up to $11 billion in unopened, unexpired medicine goes to waste every year. Serum was set up to solve this injustice. Hey, Adam, it's so good to see you. It's been a long time. Thanks for coming aboard. My pleasure, Rafi. Maybe we can just start from the top. Tell me about Serum. What is it? So Serum is a nonprofit. We're a social enterprise. We save medicine to save lives. It's really kind of at the intersection of technology, healthcare, and social good. So we take surplus medications and get them to the families who need them. In the U.S., that's about 10 million low-income adults that are uninsured and underinsured and have a chronic condition that needs medication. Yet, at the same time, we have $11 billion in perfectly good unexpired medicines that go to waste. And that's just a real injustice. We pay to destroy medicine that other people need. So where does the medicine that Serum gives out come from? The medicine comes throughout the supply chain. Health facilities may have surplus because a patient changes dosages or changes drugs. Up the supply chain, manufacturers and wholesalers have a lot of safety stock, more safety stock than on other industries because you don't want to have a drug shortage. They sit on that surplus till it becomes kind of short dated, still unexpired, but then they'll want to get rid of it at around six months of expiration. We try to make donating medicine just as simple as destroying it. So, you know, typically a health facility or a manufacturer wholesaler with surplus would just burn their surplus medicine or some places would even flush literally going down a toilet and harming the environment rather than going to someone who needs it. And, and that's just a real shame. So we just basically put the equivalent of a recycling bin into these facilities When they fill up the bin, they notify us. We take that bin, match it with one of our partner clinics or pharmacies, and then those partners will dispense that medication directly to a low-income individual who's uninsured or underinsured. First, I love what you said. Let's try to make donating medicine just as simple as destroying it. That's awesome. But let me make sure I got this right. You're saying that underinsured people can literally say, my pharmacy is serum when they go to the doctor, and serum does everything like a regular pharmacy does. They take the prescription, they fill it. The only difference is that these are unused medications that have been donated rather than new medications directly from the manufacturer. Absolutely. Um, It's as simple as when you're in a doctor and you say, you know, send my medications to CVS or send them to Walgreens, they can pick one of our partner pharmacies and then the medications can be picked up at that pharmacy or even be mail ordered directly to their home. Okay, that's incredible. Let's take a second and back up. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in North Florida. Uh, I was very ambitious from a very young age. I, I told everyone I wanted to run a company. And, you know, to make that happen, I, I 
did well in school, got into Stanford. When I got to Silicon Valley, it was just the start of Facebook and a lot of these other services. Entrepreneurship was very popular. And I kind of shifted my focus from just running a company to actually starting a company and had lots of ideas for that while I was in college. But you know, none that I was willing to risk my career for. You know, All of them kind of never got past the business plan competition or a PowerPoint deck. And so I ended up kind of going on to McKinsey, working in the healthcare industry, and then on to kind of business school. And my thinking at the time was just to kind of keep my options open, still kind of be in the business world while I thought through what type of company I would want to start. I am a builder. If I was any good at all with wood, I would see myself as a carpenter, just love to build things. But as a consultant, I was kind of only building PowerPoint decks and financial models. We were working on big challenges at big companies, but the work kind of still felt small. Was my legacy just to increase kind of customer engagement at Big Co. So I just knew I was missing something. It took me a while to kind of figure out what that was and kind of realize I was just following the herd. I didn't really know what I wanted. I hadn't spent the time to really figure out what I wanted. I got up in this false sense that that success is linear. And I saw the success around me in consulting and at business school, that success was linear. And it's kind of easy to get caught up in the sense of a ladder that you're kind of going from one rung to the next, getting more and more kind of prestigious stamps on your resume. And then how does this all become serum? Why did you choose to make that your mission? So inspiration was from like a family trip I made to Indonesia. I I noticed that there was a relief effort while I was there for a tsunami, but the relief effort was really inefficient. In particular, a lot of medicine was being donated, but not much was getting into the hands of the people who needed it. And when it was, the coordination was kind of done over email, and it was taking months before that medication was getting into the hands of the folks who needed it. This was actually at the same time that Amazon announced its two-day prime delivery. And the thought that as a society, we were doing better at kind of delivering home goods to folks, and that was happening faster and more reliably than life-saving medications were getting to folks, really disturbed me. I mean, yeah, I can totally see that. That dissonance is incredible. And I'll just kind of point out here what I think is actually kind of interesting is I was not kind of proximate to this issue. I think my family doesn't struggle with access to medicine or life-saving medications. You know, there's this assumption that in the social goods sector that people need to have like a lived experience. And lived experience can make you an amazing entrepreneur, can give you that catalyst for action. So that is really, really good to have. But it's not a requirement. And I think it unfortunately dissuades a lot of people who don't feel proximate to any kind of social issue that they can't have an impact or can't do something. And I just kind of want to put myself out there that I just kind of noticed an inefficiency. I was an engineer and I kind of went about trying to figure out how can technology fill in the gaps. But still, making that jump is a big one. Where did that courage come from? Where did that self-confidence come from to tackle a problem so distant from where you started? I definitely think I only got to this conclusion because of family and friends. I had a a very introspective girlfriend, now wife. And I think it's like kind of with her guidance and then the help of some close family that let me see, Adam, are you really happy right now? I'm very easygoing. And I can kind of trick myself that if I'm intellectually engaged, that I'm happy. And I think it took others pointing out to me that I wasn't necessarily happy to kind of spur this type of thinking and this eventual change in career. So you're happy now? 
Absolutely. Haven't ever looked back. And so the end of the story is I dropped out of Harvard Business School to start Serum. And people kind of looked at me crazy at the time, but I have never once regretted that decision. Again, that's amazing. Hey, Adam, part of what I'm interested in is what's your day-to-day like? Like, how different is it working at a tech company versus working at a a tech-powered social enterprise like Serum? It's not that different. I spent, right now, we're the 10-year overnight success. I spent many, many of those prior years as an individual contributor, leveraged the finance skills I got at McKinsey, leveraged the programming skills that I had developed at Stanford and and on my own. And those kind of for-profit skills were incredibly and readily transferable to the nonprofit sector. If you walked into Serum, you would see a 40-person startup. It is not like a traditional charity, and we don't want it to be like a traditional charity. More recently, we've started to scale. Now I'm managing. And so that has its own kind of new set of challenges. And for the managerial challenges, it's pretty transferable to any other sector as well. Trying to get the right person to work on the right problem at the right time. And once you have that, you try to support them the best you can and unblock them whenever whenever they come up to an obstacle. I think earlier on might be a little bit more interesting in that like I think there's a lot of challenge when people are trying to get a startup off the ground, especially a social sector startup. It's very easy to fall into this trap of what I call productive procrastination. Productive procrastination. It's kind of working on something that isn't really essential and by putting off something that is. Some people also kind of call it pseudo work. But when we were first getting started, me and my two co-founders, I had this sense that I needed to write a business plan. I needed to make the website. I needed to incorporate. And all of that doesn't matter at all. That is literally busy work at that stage. What I should have been doing is cold calling customers and validating the business. Does this make sense? Am I adding value? Is anyone going to use that? So my advice to my former self back then would have really been, are you asking yourself the hard question of why aren't people signing up for this? Why aren't people using this? Then fix that issue. Then ask people again and fix that issue and repeat that 100 times. And then you, you get product market fit. And then it makes sense to write the business, the business plan about how you're going to scale. It makes sense to make that VC deck to try to get funding. But before that, it's really putting the cart before the horse. So it really is like a startup. But what are you not telling me? Like, where does it differ from a tech startup? It's much harder. One of the things I love about Serum, but also one of the things is just that if you're only trying to maximize shareholder value, you have your one metric. If you're a VC-funded business, you're trying to get that exit. With us, we have to not only run a viable business, we're trying to be financially sustainable. So we have finances kind of as one of our core metrics. But we're also trying to help as many folks as possible. Oftentimes, the people we're trying to help don't have the resources to make it sustainable. So we have challenges of like, how do we balance this kind of sustainability with with excess? Also, you take out the profit incentive for investors. And so the money is just harder to come by. You don't get large kind of seed rounds like you would in a venture capital business. And that can make these funding rounds $10,000, $15,000 grants. And you're just spending all your time kind of scrounging together kind of small grants trying to come up with one full-time salary, much less five. And it's just really sad that today's society, like if you want to tackle the most important 
important challenges in the world and the ones the world should care the most about, that you're the most under-resourced of anyone. If, but if you're trying to do some type of media engagement platform, you can get the 20 million seed without any traction. I think there's just a lot of a lot of thinking we need to do as a society about how we're allocating resources and making sure we're getting top talent working on the world's toughest problems. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree from my background. Getting the top talent to work on the toughest problems is really hard, especially when the market's willing to pay them so much to go do ad click optimization and things like that. So, but then let's talk about how you've managed to hire and pretty good talent to Serum. What's the story you tell them? How do you find these people? How do you get them excited to jump ship and join you on your mission? Yeah, so yeah, kind of two parts of that. I am relatively new to hiring and have had to get really good at it really quickly. We have a team of about 40 people kind of pride ourselves in having kind of rock star staff, call them small but mighty. And I think hiring is all about kind of ruthless prioritization. It's like the interview process only is long enough to really evaluate someone on three or four attributes. And so you have to be really thoughtful about what roles you need and knowing that you're going to potentially only get those three or four things. If that job title that you're looking for doesn't exist at any other company, good luck trying to recruit someone who's this hybrid role that has these skills that span across kind of different departments. And so I think I've just really been humbled and and forced to prioritize and thinking, okay, does this person actually exist out there? Is this a talent pool that I can draw from? What are the three attributes that I'm looking for that even if I only get those three this person is good for this role. That's kind of really my learnings there. I guess there was a second part of your question, though. It's like, how do you attract that type of talent? And it's getting easier, you know, as our name is getting out there more, more and more people actually inbound to us and a lot of good word of mouth and a lot of referrals. So that's been quite a bit of our hiring. But I also have to say, and I know this is a little bit of what you're talking about in this podcast, is like how people make that decision to kind of take that risk like I did, make that jump. And I think it's it's a little bit of being aware that you mimic the success that you're exposed to. I was doing that at McKinsey. Everyone at McKinsey goes to HBS. I was just kind of following the herd. And you have to look around at the people around you and you have to kind of think like, is this the person I want to be in 10 years? If I want to be different than that person, I have to do something different than them. I cannot do the same things they did and then expect a different result. And I think what I realized what people were doing or what people were thinking that was very similar and where I needed to diverge was that I think there's a sentiment of like a deferred life plan. You do well and then you do good. And I think that's very appealing. But unfortunately, life is hard. It can be really, really hard. Things happen. And that deferred life plan almost ends up once it meets life getting downgraded into a, a more achievable, have a good life and provide a good life for myself and my family. You know, of course, there are exceptions. Like if you're one of the 100 richest people in the world, start a foundation. But you literally have to be one of the top 100 richest. Like being a billionaire isn't enough because with 1 billion, you want 2 billion. You're still using money as that as that measuring stick. But what I have found is that there, the two paths I found are, are, one, you kind of start early like I did, take that risk, whether that was with the help of friends or family or life experience or proximity to an issue, you just kind of were forced down that path or, or chose to go down that path. 
The second one I think is kind of interesting. We have many employees who kind of had a socially minded child who asked their mother or their father, what do you do? And parents said, in answering that, kind of realized that they weren't being a good role model for their child. They were a little embarrassed by that answer and decided that with an impressionable child that they wanted to be the role model that that child was looking for. So I have seen people gravitate towards us for that reason as well. Yeah, a few years ago, my son was asked at school, what do your parents do? And he said, you know, I was working at the Democrats at the time, my dad tries to make the world better. So I completely sympathize with that. I want my kids to know me for what I've done. And I really felt proud that I was showing my son the right thing at that time. So do you ever find when you're talking to potential engineers that they're struggling with this choice? Like they're interviewing with you and they're interviewing with a company at the same time. They're sitting at this fork in the road. Like what, what do you tell them at that fork? I, don't, I do not do a hard sell. And, and I'm saying things here that I would not say to a prospective employee because I do think they need the space to make that choice for themselves. I, I try to be as transparent as possible make sure that they meet the people that they'll be working with. They see the work. All the code we do is open source so they can see what they would be coding. Be very transparent about the challenges that we face as a company. And just hope that the work is unique enough and the impact is, is apparent enough that they make that choice. Doesn't always happen, though. We've had almost all of our candidates have had multiple job offers. We being the only nonprofit social good. Three out of four times we get that candidate, but... We also miss out on a lot of good opportunities that way as too. If I was doing more of a hard sell to those candidates, I would say, how much do nice cars and luxury vacations bring you happiness? Are you using money and prestige like I did as a measuring stick? Because if you're going to take the risk, you should do it now. It'll only get harder if you wait. And if you're waiting for some kind of mythical opportunity to stop your deferred life plan and get into a job where you're trying to make the world a better place, the time to do it, it's always right now. I once had this opportunity to talk to students at the high school I went to when I was younger to answer questions for them of what it would take to follow the same path I followed. So what would you tell an 18-year-old right now? I would say that high school and college are nice because there is just one rubric for success, which is grades, and that life gets a lot more complicated a lot more quickly. And so to explore the different things that they want to do and the interests that they have now, practicality aside, I kind of went straight into a business major and I kind of had my blinders on. And I think those early years where as long as you get good grades, it almost doesn't matter what you study, you might as well find what your passions are, find where your interests are, find where your strengths are, rather than being so dead set that you're going to be a business person or I'm going to be a doctor or I'm going to be a lawyer because those questions will come back and haunt you in your 40s and 50s. You don't have the exposure wherewithal to, to do that when you're younger. I sometimes tell people that you're the person you're waiting for. Like no one else is going to tell you to do things. If there are problems in the world, no one might fix them except maybe you. So you're the one you're waiting for and you have to take advantage of that. Yeah, I love that sentiment. In today's society, it's so easy to get angry and point fingers and no one's looking inward thinking, how can I individually make the world a better place? And if everyone just did that, if everyone, every engineer kind of sat to themselves and said, what could I code that would make the world a better place? The world would become a better place. So I, I completely agree with what you're thinking. Adam, thanks so much for joining us today on Mission Driven. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. 
Next time, we're changing topics. Immigration and immigration reform in the U.S. is a much talked about issue. But we usually get wrapped around the political issues and we rarely talk about the people who are affected or who are involved. We're going to talk to Fred Diego, who was the CTO of Streetwide, a nonprofit focused on building technologies to help people mobilize around ICE raids. See you next time.